Thank you, Father, for uh, the majesty that you hold uh, before your people, that you are to be revered and glorified in all things. Father, we pray that your word uh, would be illuminated to our understanding by the indwelling spirit, that these things would be fused together for our growth and understanding, uh, that you would give us wisdom in how we live and humility before you in all times. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at Deuteronomy. We'll look at some of the end of chapter 2, but we're also going to branch into 3 today and skip around a little bit just to look at some texts that are probably important for us. And I just want to refresh your mind what we're looking at. If you remember, what's going on right now is Moses is recounting Israel their past history, what happened to them. Why is it that they are where they are and, and they are who they are? Getting ready to go over into the promised land and finally inherit something that their fathers could not because of unbelief. And so in branching into that, I want us to look at chapter 2. We'll look here, verse 24. Moses is recounting their beginning of their conquest, he says, Arise, set out and pass through the valley of Arnon, which actually is a river uh, that flowed there that separated uh, Moab from the rest of the uh, northern region. And, and Mitch, whenever you want to bring up the map, is cool. Just the, the big map's fine. Uh, he says, Look, I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand, begin to take possession, begin to inherit and contend with him in battle. Now, right up here, look, I got a pointer today. Right there. Everybody praise Jesus. Everybody's excited about that. Uh, the Arnon River right there, crossing over this boundary into this section. Uh, if we were to go up just a little bit right here, you would find Ammon. If you remember Ammon, Ammon and Moab, are both descended from Judah, okay? Uh, or sorry, not Judah, Lot. They're both descended from Lot after Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Edom, of course, is of Esau, the tribe of Esau, the land that's allotted to them, and Esau is Jacob's brother. So we see that those three places have allotted inheritance. Do not touch them. Do not mess with them. That's their land. I'm not going to give it to you. God is extremely serious about real estate, he is. He's very serious about who gets what, when, and where, and where they live, the whole thing. Remember, he's got divine purposes behind it. The reason why he has people born when they are in the time and geography is because he is giving people the maximum opportunity that they would have in their life to reach out their hands and believe in him. That's the reason why he does that. So this is different because with Sihon, something has happened and he's, it's the idea of Heshbon. Now, Heshbon, uh, let's see here. Oops, right here. Heshbon is right here in this plot of land that's going to later become uh, Reuben, okay? Uh, Heshbon, uh, the Sihon, this whole situation has gone south for them. In fact, there's some people that have looked at this and said, you know, when we talked about going out and, and, and invading these people, uh, this whole idea of the Amorites wasn't really in the beginning. I, I, don't, I don't know that I necessarily believe that or not, uh, but, it, but, it's, but it's part of the conquest, and it actually ends up being the first section of this. So if you remember, they set out, verse 26, so I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Now remember, God said, I'm going to give them over into your hand, but they set out in a peaceful manner. And we're going to talk about why that is probably next week. Uh, we deal with it in Deuteronomy chapter 20, actually much later, but we'll deal with that next week. We'll probably skip forward and look at it. And he says here, verse 27, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I won't turn aside to the right or the left. Sell me food for money. Sell me water for money. Um, let, let us pass through, please. Uh, and remember verse 29, here's our track record. We treated Esau well. We treated Edom well. We treated the Moabites well. You've seen that. But notice verse 30. But Sion, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through their, his land. Here it is. For, here's the reason. And real quick, anytime that you see the word for, 
especially when you're dealing in the Greek, the word for, it's a causal conjunction in what it is. And the idea of for is based on the statement that I just made, I am going to give you reasons or rationalizations or further support for why I've made such a statement, okay? It's the same idea no matter where it's at. Was not willing for us to pass through land for, here's the reason why, the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order, here's the reason why, to deliver him into your hand as he is today. How do you deal with the idea that God hardens his spirit and his heart so that he will fall and die and his people be wiped out? How do we handle that? Does that create any kind of emotional or internal tension with anyone about who God is? Everybody's cool with it? Everybody thinks it's just great. God just destroy everybody. Okay. Yes. 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 There is only one God. It's the difference in how Moses is approaching the situation. The Lord our God, but he's still the one speaking. Talking about the Lord your God. Now remember this. He is speaking on an event that has already happened. He's recounting past records for them to bring them to a point. And we won't reach the end of that point until the end of chapter 4. So he's recounting all of this. Got that? So it's a good question. Now on your handout that I gave you, just some things to look at. Beginning with 2.24 and stretching into chapter 3, how should we think about holy war or probably more probably what would be better understood is Yahweh war is what it is that Yahweh is the warrior he is the reason for victory he is the one who receives all credit and honor for the victory that is secured for the people and the command of Yahweh to harem is how you say it you got to get that Jewish guttural in there harem right sounds like you're having a bad sickness this season Haram, okay, Haram, the people and their cities. Now let's look at this real quick and see exactly what it is. That's that's what it is. Have you ever heard, have you ever listened to somebody speak Hebrew pretty fluent? Oh man, it sounds like hairballs all over the place. I've got this one guy, his name's Joshua Aaron. He's from Pennsylvania and I actually did a wedding and he was the musical guest there and this guy goes everywhere preaching and, uh, preaching and singing songs uh, in Messianic Jewish congregations. And I've got some of his CDs. And he'll say something real beautiful in English, and they'll be like, <laughs> and I'm like, no one can worship to that. That's crazy. But he's into it. I don't know. I have to let you hear it sometime. Maybe I'll bring it next week, have Mitch play a little bit of it. It's interesting. Uh, especially he's playing something real slow. Sounds real like love songish, And then, <laughs> like, that date's over. <laughs> so... <clears throat> So look at verse 33 of chapter 2. The Lord our God delivered him over to us. Notice, the Lord our God delivered him over to us. And we defeated him with his sons and all his people. Pay attention. So we captured all his cities at that time, and here it is, utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. Remember, it wasn't just like they conquered one it wasn't like they came into Mayberry and took it over, okay? They conquered multiple fortified cities. They were strongholds, there were barriers, there were trained warriors, and the Lord gave the victory. Every city, we left no survivor. Everybody see that phrase, utterly destroyed? Does anybody have a different translation that there's something different mentioned there? What is it? Devoted to destruction? Completely. Completely destroyed, is that what it says? Completely destroyed. This is, this phrase right here, utterly destroyed, is the Hebrew word harem, okay? And if you see how, how you, how you uh, spell it there, H-A-R-E-M if you want to write it in. The whole idea is to devote them to the Lord for the sake of extinguishing them. It's almost like a sacrifice, kind of. It's almost like a payment, because of their rampant sin. And I'll go ahead and spoil the end for you. Why in the world would the Lord command Israel, who are not trained warriors, to come in and do something like this? It's because the sin of these people is so great that it can't stand any longer, is the reason why. Now, here's what's interesting is, before we 
catch back up with three. Let's turn over to Numbers 21. If you turn back to Numbers 21, we deal with the event as it happens in real time. And there are some things that we find out that, of course, Moses' recollection of it doesn't give us. Now, this is why it is important, it is vital when you're studying your Bible to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, I know from last week's sermon, all of you went hold and got out or ordered a Strong's Concordance and sat down and went through chosen, elect, choice. You went through every one of those, and you got a big yellow pad that's just filled up with information, don't you? Everybody does, right? If we don't study the Bible, we don't know God, okay? It's important to understand. So when you want to cross-reference some things, Sihon of Heshbon, king of the Amorites, okay, where else do I see him in Scripture? Look him up in a concordance. Where else do I see Sihon? Where else do I see Amorites? Where else do I see Heshbon? Put all of those things together. I'm telling you, pen and paper, worth its weight in gold. So we're going to start over here, verse 21, Numbers 21, verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now stop. He sent them, why? How did they approach the situation? Peaceably, exactly. So it says here, verse 22, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into the field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all of his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Notice that Israel has sought to be respectable in approaching this situation. We're coming with peace. They don't come in and just start throwing swords and doing things like that. It's not how it happens. It says here, verse 24, Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Now, if you look here, you have, uh, was down here, uh, right here is possibly where Jazer was located at. Everybody see Jabbok right here? It's in blue. You can't hardly see it. The Jabbok River that flowed along here. Does everybody see that? Okay. Then down here would have been the Arnon. So notice this. Get this. This wasn't some rinky-dink, you know, we wanted cards or something like this. We're talking from down here all the way up to here, they conquered all of this section. This was their first battle after 38 years of walking around. First battle. Now, just imagine in this region how many cities we're dealing with. Do we know the size of how many people? The mileage? Man, if we shrink back, Mitch, can we see the whole map? Okay. So. <laughs> well, that is not the size of my hand, though. Uh, let's go back. Okay, I know. Sneak up on you. So we're talking probably 60 miles. 60 miles of conquering. Now, forgive me for saying it this way, but that's a lot of butt-whipping. It really is, isn't it? Can you imagine? Hey, we want to come through peaceably. Out they come. No, we're not going to let you do it. All right, we got to fight. And all they've got is the confidence of the Lord saying, I got you. I'm going to fight for you. You're going to win this. And they keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting 60 miles and God delivers everything. We're talking trained soldiers. We're talking, their walls weren't just high, they were thick. Remember, once you got to the top of them, you still had to run a little while before you got into the city. We're talking guys with shields. We're talking guys with spears. No, it says that Israel took the edge of the sword and took possession, inherited their land, and took it over. Now, look at verse 25. Israel took all these cities, notice plural, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought. Now pay attention, because remember last week we talked about these people dispossessed these people and these people dispossessed this. And we talked about the giants. Everybody remember that? The Emim and the Zamimim. Everybody remember that? Yeah, see if you haven't been here for a while, we covered a lot of really cool stuff. We know a lot of words you don't. 
So notice here, for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all of his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Stop for a second and think about what this is saying. Moab formerly had all of this land. All this land up to this river was his. Everybody see that? So what happens is, is Sihon comes in, he goes against Moab and takes all this land from him. He dispossesses Moab. Now stop. Wasn't God very clear to Israel? Do not try to take any of their land. You're not going to get it. What does Sihon do? What was his end because of it? Death. God takes real estate very seriously. Very seriously. So what's amazing is, is in doing so, and because Israel comes in and the Lord is the conqueror of this, the land doesn't go back to Moab, but it does stay in the family. And now it's part of Israel. Everybody see how that works? So when we talk about people dispossessing people, there's a lot going on here geographically that we might not necessarily realize at first take. So it says here, verse 37, or sorry, 27. Therefore, because of that, those who use Proverbs say, now think about this, about the dispossession and all this stuff that went on. Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab. In other words, it was a takeover. Everybody remember how we talked about Ar is sometimes used as a generalization for all of Moab, like Jacob and Israel, those types of things. The dominant heights of the Arnon, of that river. Woe to you, O Moab. You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. So not only did Sihon conquer and take land, he also took some of their people and put them into slavery. It says here, but we have cast them down, we being Israel. Heshbon is ruined as far as Deban. Then we have laid waste even to Nophah, which reaches to Medabah. And you might say, where is all that stuff? And I'll tell you, if it's not on the map, I don't have a clue. But what we get is, is that Israel has overthrown the people who overthrew Moab. And it was actually a proverb that was spoken at that time about the prosperity and the glory of Sihon, what he had done. And it almost seems here in verse 30 that Israel is tacking on the end of Sihon's story. And that is the fact that when God got involved, he overthrew the whole thing and he destroyed you completely. Verse 31, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. So there you have more of a displayed, full setting of what was going on with Sihon of the Amorites. Any questions about that before we move forward or observations or anything? Okay, let's turn back to Deuteronomy. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. Now, Bashan, just to show you where it's located at. Mitch, can we bring that up again? You're having problems? We have a new program that Mitch has put together, gotten a hold of for us. Man, it's great. Right now it's having problems. You're having an Apple problem? Should have been PC. Should have been PC. All right, everybody turn to the maps in the back of your Bible. Oh. You hear Roxanne up here? She goes, if it was PC, he wouldn't have. <laughs> wouldn't have been able to get it back up. Good grief. All right. So notice here, Dibon, it's a place we looked at right there. Dabon, however you want to say it, up there. They go up into Bashan. Bashan is in this area right here is what we're dealing with. It's actually a region, not a city. That might be the reason why you can't see it. In fact, Mitch, can we bring up the other map that we have? Can, can Apple do that? There we go. Uh, let's see here. So Bashan's going to be right here in this area, okay? It's up just right around the Sea of Galilee that we're going to deal with, okay? So they decide they're going to travel up northward to Bashan. It says, And Og, the king of Bashan, 
with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Edre. Now we need to go back to the other map. I apologize. Uh, and here's where, just so you know, Bashan, uh, right next to the region of the Sea of Galilee, Edre is just north of what is called Ramoth Gilead. Okay, so it's right here in this region. That's Edre right there. And notice it's right on the edge. It still doesn't violate the border that Ammon has here. We're still not messing with their land whatsoever. But right there is where Edri is. Let's see here. Verse 2, But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of, Amorite, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Now it's important that he brings that up. The reason why, anytime you're reading the word, think about this. Why are they bringing up a past instance that took place? Would you say that the victory against Sihon was successful? Okay, as people who aren't really soldiers, you need that extra oomph in order to get the job done, in order to move forward and really take care of, of business. So look at verse 3. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. Mark that. Complete annihilation and extermination. We captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. It was an emphatic victory. And notice what it tells you what it was. How many cities? 60 cities. All the region of Argob, the king of Og, of Bashan. Now, Argob, uh, is it right there? Gosh. It is right in there. So, but I can't remember because I saw it on another map. I'm trying to think. Anyway, they, they killed stuff. That's what we need to know. Uh, verse 5. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. 60 cities, high walls, all of them had gates, all of them had bars, okay? Verse 6, here's the word again. We utterly destroyed Haram them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Now, let's stop there, okay? I want to show you something real quick. Uh, let's see here. Go down to verse 11. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left from the remnant of the Rephaim. Og was what? He was a giant. So this is one of those situations. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. His bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's how big this guy was. And they kept his bed as a trophy. This is what God did. We killed this guy. That's where he slept. That's what it took. So it was a trophy unto the Lord that they decided to hold on to. So how do we deal with the idea of harem? Let's turn back to Numbers 21 again. We're going to see the real-time event. It's only couple verses long, three verses long. <clears throat> Numbers 21, look at verse 33. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan went out with all of his people for battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I've given him into your hand, and all his people and his land and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons, all his people, until there were no, was no remnant left him. And they possessed, they inherited his land. How do we deal with this situation? Turn with me to Exodus 20. What is this? 
You know, I'm, I'm teaching James tonight, and so I need you to be here tonight to make that complete, right? All three times? Just saying. Yeah, it's okay. He actually has an awesome trailer on Craigslist. If anybody's interested in it, he's trying to sell it. Needs some work. He's asking 500 bucks for it, but you should hit him up if you need one. Hey, I'm, I'm advertising for you. I'm trying to help you out. Help me help you, right? Chapter 20 of Exodus. What is this? Ten Commandments. You realize that the whole basis of holy war, this is where it starts. It starts in the Ten Commandments. And actually, it starts with just the first two commandments. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't we see him describe himself like this numerous times throughout the Old Testament when speaking to Israel? Let's not, let's, let's not forget about the importance of the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim is the idea. Yahweh is his personal name. Elohim is his stature as the creator of all things. He is the personal but creator God. He says here, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That is important. If you don't have that marked or underlined, pull out the pen, mark it, maybe circle it, and next to it, write a big number one. That's the first commandment. The very first commandment, no other gods. Verse 4, second commandment. Maybe circle it, write out a big number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, now watch this, of what is, number one, in heaven above, or, number two, on the earth beneath, or, number three, in the water under the earth. Now, because we started late, do I get to keep you guys late? I said that Roxanne turns around and looks at them. Shame on you. The Lord sees your heart. So, notice in the waters under the earth. Pause for a second. Anybody ever teach you in science class that water's under the earth? That's what God's Word says. Think about it. There's probably a lot of things that God's Word says that you were never taught in school that actually change the way you think about geography. Very interesting. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. If you want to talk more about it later, we can. Notice it says here, you shall not make anything in the likeness, heaven above, earth beneath, or under the earth. All three areas. Nothing should You should make nothing in your hands that looks anything like that, including there should be nothing that looks like Jesus. There should be nothing that looks like God. There should be nothing depicting angels. None of that stuff. Nothing. Why is that? Why is that such a serious thing to God? I mean, it's the second commandment. Of all the, of all the order he could have put him in, this is the second thing he's dealing with. Why is that? Because they all fall dramatically short of how he initially created it. We are not to worship images. We are to be in awe and humble ourselves under his word. That is what leads us to him. So verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh Elohim, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children on the third and the fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those are the first two commandments that you have summed up in six verses. This is the basis for why holy war had to take place. Now, with that in mind, let's turn over to Exodus 23. See how the story progresses here. And one thing that I did in this section, we're going to finish up with this, and we'll probably come back and start here next week. Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33, if you want to write it down on your paper. Something I did that was extremely helpful is as I went through this, these 13, 14 verses of Scripture, I took out a highlighter. And every time that God refers to himself as I, I highlighted it. Uh, and it looks like I've got some really creative Braille on my, on my Bible right now because it's all lit up. Verse 20, behold, 
I am going to send an angel, a messenger before you, to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, everybody got what's going on here? Remember, this is first generation. We get back into Exodus, we're dealing with the first generation that eventually failed. But notice what he's saying. You're going to have a messenger before you. We're in chapter 23. I see some of you looking around. We're in chapter 23 of Exodus. And we're starting in verse 20. Let's read it again. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice and do not be rebellious toward him for, here's the reason why, he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. In other words, he will not tolerate willful sin. The idea is to follow him and obey him completely without reservation. What he tells you is my word, is the idea. Does everybody see that God takes obedience and sin seriously? That's, that's the whole thing that these first five books are trying to get across to us if we were reading them. God takes sin seriously, and you can never go wrong by obeying him. Very, very important. So he says here, verse 22, but if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, my messenger, will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them. Isn't that commandment number two that we just saw? Notice, we're only three chapters away from where we just saw that, and he's reiterating that fact. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow. Now, here's what's interesting about this word, utterly overthrow. It's the word harris, H-E-R-E-S, and it is actually very far away from being related as far as a lexicon is concerned to harem, which I thought was interesting. But the word still means to annihilate. The other word means to exterminate. This word that God uses here is to annihilate, okay? So he's getting the point across. You shall annihilate them, utterly overthrow them, and break their sacred pillars in peace. In other words, you will do away with their people and you will do away with their objects of worship. Verse 25, but you shall serve Yahweh your Elohim and he will bless your bread and your water and I will remove sickness from your midst. When you serve God in this situation, you will be so blessed that you'll never lack food, water, or health. Amazing. It says here, verse 26, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. In other words, everyone will be fruitful. I will fulfill the number of your days. Everybody will have longevity. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Verse 27, I will send my terror. Very good. I will send my terror ahead of you. In other words, I'm going to give you the advantage on the battlefield. And look how he does it. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. Now, hold on just a second, because this is important. This verse right here is telling us how God brings about this idea of war. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. Anybody know what that's called? From a spirit standpoint, imagine, I mean, think about it. God is telling you how he's going to get engaged in war, in battle. It's psychological warfare. I'm actually going to mess with their minds, is what God is saying. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. I'm actually going to get inside their heads so that they can't think straight, and they're all kinds of confused. And look at the very end here that he says. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I'm going to give them misdirection. In other words, turn their backs on you. Now pause. A soldier comes at you. He's all clad out in iron, right? And he's coming at you. He's got his sword or his shield or something like that. But when he t- what was the danger of the back of a soldier? Unprotected. Notice what he's saying here. I'm going to make it like they all turned around 
and you just had free game to just take out whoever you wanted to. That's how not thinking straight they're going to be. See, we never thought this about God before, have we? That he would actually get into the heads of people who are his enemies and actually cause them to be easily taken down. It says here, verse 28, I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Pestilence. Verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. In other words, there is going to be a gradual dispossession of the people in order to ensure the future health of the land so that Israel can settle there and it be a fruitful situation. And notice the reasons why he gives. So that it won't become barren, so nobody's out there not tending anything for a while, so there's no food for you to have once you take over. But also on top of that, the animals might get out of control. And if everybody gets mauled out by animals, God cannot fulfill his promise of making sure that the line of the Messiah comes to be a blessing. So notice the way that God is going to go about this is going to be methodical. He moves on here. Verse 30, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. In other words, he's going to work in conjunction with his people in order to make sure that it's prosperous. Verse 31, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. And notice Euphrates is italicized. It was added in for clarity. For I will deliver the inhabitants of your land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Now let's pause right there. Mitch, can you bring up the huge map that's all the way across? It's got the desert in the middle. Think about the geography that he's saying here in verse 31. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea. Now, we know that. Uh, let's see here. Down here, right? Red Sea. What's the next one? What's to say about the Philistines? See, if you remember from last week, the Sea of the Philistines. Does anybody know where the Sea of the Philistines is? Where are the Philistines from? Crete. Where's Crete located? Okay, so notice what we're dealing with. From here to here, notice the next one that he says. From the wilderness, what's the wilderness? Well, obviously that's pretty clear, right? The wilderness to what part? They added it in for you. The river what? Euphrates. Notice all this right here. This is the extent of the promise of the land. Israel has only occupied this much. That's why I make the little joke. They've only got a bacon strip on everything that they should have. Thank you for giggling. I need giggles every time I say bacon strip about the Jewish land, okay? Uh, but notice that right here. They're supposed to occupy all of this. Now, we've talked about this before. How in the world are they going to occupy all of this land? This is the key to prophetic fulfillment. The land is what is left to be fulfilled. Are the children of Israel numerous? Yeah, in fact, back in chapter 1, Moses made a declaration. You've become as many as the sands on the shore. Abraham's covenant fulfilled there. Do we have the blessing of the Messiah who's died for all? We do, so there's your blessing. Second part of the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. Does Israel occupy all of the land they were promised? No. That's what we're waiting for. All of prophecy hinges on real estate. And how are they going to have... All of this set up. Now, what's interesting is, is if you go to Revelation 21 and you measure out what the measurements of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, I tell you what's interesting is, it fits real snug in this place. It fits real snug in there. How do you get all that land? Well, easy. You have the greatest warrior that there's ever been come back and take it. And what's interesting is, I think this is important to realize, when Jesus returns, when Jesus returns... He does not, okay, now I'm going to take the U.S. and be in the Capitol, or I'm going to be here at the White House. I'm going to take, he doesn't go around and decide to take everybody's kingdoms. He takes everybody's kingdoms and he goes, and he squishes them all like grapes. And then he sets up the brand new kingdom, which is in the midst of Israel, which is out of Jerusalem, which is on the throne of his father, David. Now, Jesus is not sitting on that throne now. He is at the right hand of the Father. And he is waiting to assume that position on earth physically. How many people have heard of progressive 
dispensationalism. Anybody heard of that? Progressive dispensationalist? Nobody? One of the one of the things that the progressive dispensationalists believe, progressive dispensationalism is a way of interpreting the Bible. And one of the major mistakes they make is they say, oh yeah, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but that throne on the right hand of the Father that he's sitting on, that's David's throne. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. And what it does, if we're saying that, they, that, that Jesus is already sitting on the throne, is it allows for this idea of the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet. It's this already not yet theory. I don't know about you, but I read enough newspaper and watch enough news stuff online and all that to know that Jesus' kingdom is not here. Okay? In fact, we're told by the Lord himself that this world is presently run by Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this present age. He is the one that is ruling all of this. So we can't afford to, to play with the scripture in order to try to make it more sense or because it's something we don't like. When he comes back, he will literally reign and he will set up his kingdom. Let's finish this up. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. There's Israel's responsibility in this matter to keep their end of the covenant. No covenant with the people. You do not worship their gods. Verse 33, they shall not live in your land. I know this sounds weird, but no foreigners. That's essentially what it's saying. If they were going to come into the land, they had to go through all of the protocol, and they had to become proselytes, essentially, of the Jewish nation if they were from another culture. Kind of like how it should work here in America, but doesn't. Okay? That's exactly how it should go on. They shall not live in your land because, uh-oh, here's the reason. Here's the reason. Pay attention. Because here's the underlying bed of why this holy war needs to happen. It's in light of, I am the Lord your God who delivered you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images, those types of things. But here it is. Because they will make you sin against me. For, there's your causal conjunction, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, I don't know when the last time it is that you read the major and the minor prophets, any of them, but you read any of them and you find out what is Israel's problem. Idols, idolatry. And how does God describe the idolatry of Israel in relation to him? What is it? Adultery. Israel worshiping other gods is the equivalent of sexual unfaithfulness rampantly in a marriage situation. We can't read Hosea without going, what in the world is going on? Without knowing that God is painting that type of picture. Notice what we see. God takes sin very seriously. Why is he going in and telling them, destroy every man, woman, child, dismantle every altar, tear down everything that you see, get rid of all remnants and scraps of these people, bury them, exterminate them, wipe them out. Why? because he doesn't want his people who he has rescued and loved to sin against him. God takes sin that seriously. Now, our minds might come to an objection of going, wait a second, how in the world could God come in and bring Israel and just wipe out all of these innocent people? What's the problem with that question? There are no innocent people. In fact, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He is good to all and his mercy is upon all that he has made. God loves people more than anything. But scripture is clear that people can come to a point where they are no longer able to be worked with. That they have hardened themselves to such a point that they have rendered themselves objects of wrath instead of objects of mercy. And it's all based on their choice. Them simply knowing what God has to say and denying it over and over and over. In fact, sometimes Scripture describes it as a, as a bottle, maybe, that their iniquity gives them time, he's patient with them, tries to work with them, reveals to them things, sends prophets to them, whatever it is. Their iniquity gets to a certain point, and when it gets to the very top, it has nowhere else to go and they have to be destroyed. Done. Done. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, in fact, because it doesn't directly fall in line with us trying to get to the person of Jesus and his death and resurrection, I actually skipped over the Sodom and Gomorrah sections, uh, but I want to preach on them because they're fantastic sections. Um, and let me just say this real quick before we close up. This is a real weird place to end. Uh, a lot of us think that um, homosexuality was the only problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was not. In fact, let's do this. Let's turn there real quick to Genesis 19. I think it's 19. I just want to show you something real quick. Let's see here, Genesis 19. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, let's do four, four and five. Before they lay down, the angels had come, Lot, or sorry, uh, yeah, Lot takes them in, closes the door. Before they went to bed that night, pretty much, the men of the city, now watch this, the men of the city, pause for a second. They don't live in an emasculated society like we do today, okay? The men of the city were the leaders. They were the ones who set the tone. They were the ones who made the decisions. They were the ones who protected the women and children. They were responsible beyond what we could possibly fathom, okay? But notice, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. All of the men, young, old, everyone, surrounded this one house. Now, just imagine for a second the mob that's surrounding one house. What makes this so special? Well, it's because they're gay and they weren't thinking straight and all that weird stuff. You could use that as a pun, whatever. Verse 5, and they called to Lot and said to him, now watch, here's where the craziness is. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. That's a very kind way of putting it, right? But of course, we know it means have intercourse with them. Now pause for a second. Is the problem here homosexuality? In part, but what's really going on? I mean, think about it. If these were just a bunch of a bunch of guys who are looking to have sex with other guys, couldn't you kind of look around at the mob and go, hey, there's a bunch of guys here. Let's all just have sex together and we're good. You see what I'm saying? It's not just an isolated out issue like that. There's something about these two men that have showed up, which we know they're what? Angels. And I don't think that it was any strange fact that they knew that either. There was something deeply demonic that was pushing these men to say, yeah, we could have sex with all these with each other if we wanted to. We're not going to do that. What does Lot do in response? Brothers, don't act wickedly here. Take my what? My daughters. And they weren't just daughters. They were what? They were virgins. Take my virgin daughters. They've never known a man. Here, take them and do what you want with them. Now, immediately, we all sit here and go, what kind of parenting situation did this guy have, right? We immediately think that, but do you think that Lot knew that these were angels of the Most High God? I think he did, and I think that's the only thing that would drive a man to say, if it comes down to my daughters or, or, or this situation, I'm going to take care of the Lord's Most High, and we're going to have to do a sacrifice type thing here. And notice, no, we don't want them. We're going to bust down your door because we want these two individuals. Does everybody see it's extensively evil? It is insanely evil. Does everybody see that going on? It's a tragedy. It really is. It's a mess. So it's, the, the sin is much deeper than that. Is there a question? Go for it. Uh, and man, that's a broad question. <laughs> In what way do you mean? I mean, everybody's struggling over the, the two-state solution. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians would be descendants of Esau. Or I'm sorry, they'd be descendants of Ishmael. I apologize. Uh, no, no. They're Ishmael. They're Ishmaelites. Exactly. As they should. And the, well, the reason is, is because it all comes back to Abraham's mistake. 
The fact that he got with a woman and didn't trust God, it's, it's, a, it's, a, result, it's a consequence of unbelief. He did not trust God in the fact that the seed would actually come through his very body with his wife as it was set up, the institution of marriage in Adam and Eve. And instead, they decided to take on a cultural practice in order to cons, uh, compensate and help God out. Scary stuff. Very scary stuff. So that's why we're in the situation that we are. This Palestinian two-state solution, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. The Palestinians won't let it happen. The Palestinians want all or nothing. Uh, in fact, uh, Atmud Ahmadinejad, who used to be over uh, Iran, actually said at the Conference of the United Nations, we will not rest until Israel is completely wiped out and destroyed. They actually want harem for Israel. They do not recognize them. And I tell you this, and, and, and I know I'm not supposed to make political statements or whatever, uh, I don't care much for Trump's presidency at all. I just don't. I'm not called to like candidates. I'm called to pray for them, and that's fine. Uh, I'm not a big fan of anybody else that would have won either. But I will tell you this. Dude has got guts to say we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem. And you know what? It was something that should have been done a long, long, long time ago. We're going to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And everybody's, oh, yay, this is really great. Oh, this is really bad. Hold the phone. This isn't new news. Jerusalem's been Israel's capital forever. But notice what they don't like is Trump is doing something so in line with truth. Man, it makes people nervous. It freaks people out. It's great stuff. It'll be interesting to see what this move looks like. It's supposed to take years to accomplish, which I never understood that. Just go pay your rent and move in. You know, I don't know, but maybe I'm just a simpleton. I'm not for sure. <laughs> Y'all don't need much. I mean, but that whole situation over there, it, 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 it's all volatile all the time. It is. I've, I've, I've talked to a missionary over there a few years ago. He said there are actually Orthodox Jews underground who are um, waiting at a moment's notice. They've got the cornerstone ready, and they could set up a basic structure of the temple on that temple mount if they could get rid of the Dome of the Rock. Within three days, they would have Old Testament sacrifices going again. Not even getting the whole structure done. They would just set up the basic frame of everything and gone. I think I'm getting the stink eye from Ruth, so we need to... We need to stop. She's out there kind of looking at me through the little beautiful gold things out there. I think like Sunday school teachers are starting to lose their hair. So let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. And pray, God, you help us to understand the seriousness of sin, the, the links that you'll go in order to not just judge sin, but to keep people from sin. And I pray, God, that we would uh, mull over and wrestle with these things, Lord, so that we grow in a better understanding uh, of your holiness and your goodness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.